0: So you may be it. I just want to welcome you here to Grace Church in the park. Uh, what a beautiful day. And so if you're visiting us today, we are so glad you're here. And uh, we just pray that you would feel God's presence here as we, uh, as we have a, a beautiful day of worshiping God. Thank you, Steve, so much. Well, I have the privilege of introducing a friend to you. His name is Jimmy. Jimmy is here with his wife, Julie, and their wonderful family. Their children are all here. Jimmy is uh, the lead pastor over at The Hill Church. Jimmy and Julie and their family came to La Mesa to help revitalize a church here in La Mesa called Windsor Hills Baptist, now called The Hill. And God has done an exciting work of gospel revitalization bringing new life to that congregation through the ministry and proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a church that you'll hear us pray for right here in our pastoral prayers as we pray for local churches in our area. The Hill is one of those churches that we love to pray for. And I am glad Jimmy is here. I wanted you to get to know him, you to benefit from his teaching gift because he's a friend and a faithful gospel preacher in our area. So would you welcome Jimmy as he comes to teach us this morning, please. Good
1: morning, Grace Church. How are we doing this morning? Good morning. Good. Good. Good to see everyone this morning. I preached at a couple different places, some different retreats and youth ministries and different outreaches and churches, and this has to be at the top of one of the places I preached at. It's a beautiful setup here. Good to see everyone. I'm grateful to be here, Tab. I extend the same love and, and grace to you as well, brother. It's an honor to open God's Word with you this morning, and I'm I'm grateful to, as he said, to have my entire family with me here this, this morning. I have my beautiful wife of 17 years with me, I have my four children, even our newest addition, who will be six weeks tomorrow. So it's a joy to be here. I was telling my family as we were riding over, here. I think it's been at least three years since we have rode in the car together to worship on a Sunday morning, so that was a joy. And I wanna say thanks to the elders here, especially uh, Tab and Josh, whom I share friendship with. I I do look uh, forward to getting to know Steve and Marshall as well. Thank you, brothers, for allowing me to be here this morning. And church, uh, you are blessed to have such faithful, humble servants who lead you. Um, As I'm sure you're uh, already doing, I want to encourage you to love your pastors well, especially in this season, in this difficult, strange season. I read a study uh, recently that stated that more pastors have left the ministry in the last eight months than we have seen in the last eight years in the United States. So love your pastors well. and Church, thank you for loving and caring for your leaders. I know that you do that. And please know that the Hill Church also prays for you. We actually prayed for you publicly last Sunday in our worship service, so we extend the same uh, uh, generous greeting to you. And um, we consider it a privilege to serve alongside you serving King Jesus in our city. a Bible, please open it to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 this morning. I will have to admit to you, I am a uh, somewhat of a passionate moving around preacher. So, I have my hand with a mic here, it's gonna be good. So, let's dig in. (laughs) Now, I've always been uh, amazed by trains. Um, While getting caught by the train was always upsetting to my parents, for me, it was always enjoyable. Um, I had no sense of time or desire to be on schedule, so I enjoyed every minute of it. It was fascinating to me to watch a train move by so up close and personal. But I was always intrigued by something. Why was the engine sometimes in the front and sometimes in the rear? Sometimes the train seemed to be uh, getting pulled along the track, but other times it seemed to be getting pushed. It wasn't until later in life that I connected the dots that there's such thing as a push-pull locomotive. That a train can actually, the locomotive can actually pull a load of cargo to one location, simply attach to the other end and push another one back. Then, it's, in fact, it's said that a train is actually more efficient when the engine pushes from the rear rather than pulling from the front. Our sermon text this morning it, uh, will cover the final verses of Romans chapter 8. And they really form a climactic conclusion to Paul's detailed train of thought regarding the Christian sanctification beginning back in chapter 6. Now, our sanctification, our growing in Christ's likeness, is the result of the outworking of our justification, which was the focus of Paul's argument up through chapter 5. Only by faith in Christ and His work in the gospel can we as sinners be made right, can we be justified before a holy God. As believers, we possess the privilege of standing positionally right before God through faith in Christ. Sanctification, then, is our becoming who we are in Him? Sanctification is us becoming in practice who we are in position. It is the ongoing work of the gospel in our lives. So, chapters six through eight really comprise Paul's theological treatise on the doctrine of sanctification. Chapter six, he unpacked our relationship to sin as believers. Now, right? He said we are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Six eleven. Chapter 7, he unpacked our new relationship to the law. We have been released from the law to belong now to the risen Christ. 7.4 In Romans chapter 8, though, he elaborates more than anywhere else in the New Testament on the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. As he tells us that we groan for glory, but we do so with God's guarantee of glory, as God works all things for our good. This morning, though, I want us to consider, as I come back to that analogy I began with, the engine... That drives this theological train along the track in terms of our sanctification. And I think that's what we find here at the end of chapter 8. This morning, I think we come to the sustaining assurance of our sanctification. Let me ask you a question. What do you consider or understand to be certain in your life? What are you a good? What do you. Understand to be inseparable and unbreakable in your life. Where do you find assurance? I'm going to give you a main idea. That's typically what I do when I preach. And I want to spend the rest of my time somewhat unpacking it. And here it is. Maybe if you're taking notes, you want to write it down. The sustaining assurance of our salvation is found in the exaltation of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. The sustaining assurance of our salvation is found in the exaltation of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. I'm going to be reading to you from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, if you want to follow along. Paul writes here, by way of the Holy Spirit, in verse 31, we begin. What shall we say to these things? The love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to sit under your word. Lord, there is no growth in Christ. There is no sanctification apart from your word and your spirit. So Lord, might the next 30, 40 minutes of our time be devoted to that end. That as the word is preached, Holy Spirit, that you might press it deeper into our hearts. That you might sink it into our souls and let it come out through our hands and into our lives. That we might be transformed, conformed into the image of our dear Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now Paul, he really does provide us with four... What I might call unanswerable questions to help us think about that this morning. And I'm really just, my outline is just going to follow those questions this morning. We're just going to look at these questions. no reason to complicate with an outline. Look at Paul's main questions here. And Paul introduces his four questions with really a question of its own. He says, what shall we say to these things? He begins with, and these things the, the, the these things here is essential. And given the exalted status of these final verses, the these things has application no doubt for everything Paul has said up until this point in the letter. As, as many scholars point out. But the, the then or the therefore here points to the fact that Paul most certainly has chapter 8 and our verses immediately preceding in mind. The these things is a reference to the golden chain of salvation from verse 30. Look at it. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? That's the logical flow of Paul's thought here. And so before we dive into this text, I want to offer you that question this morning. Directly. What shall you say to these things? How should you respond? Christian, I want to challenge you this morning. To insist on applying the truths that you believe to your life. Christian, we must remain forever on guard against allowing our faith to become merely theory. We cannot overlook the fact that this question begins Paul's concluding words in this section dealing with sanctification. And while sanctification requires us studying and knowing the truths of the Bible it demands so much more it demands our response it demands application of these truths in our lives for you to become who you are in Christ these truths these truths must go down must go beyond your mind to your heart's to your hands true biblical knowledge demands we be bold enough apply the great truths of our faith to our daily lives. Christian, your sanctification demands an insistence on your part of applying God's truth to your life. We must do the hard work of forcing the truth in our minds into the crevices of our hearts, which in turn inform our thinking and shape our action. And Paul is going to help us this morning do that. And he's going to help us do that by providing us these four unanswerable questions I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. It. The first one is this. Who can be against us? Let me read verse 31 and 32 again. What shall we say to these things? It is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him not graciously give us all things? Notice Paul did not say, who is against us? If he had, there would've followed a whole list of examples. For there are many foes in our life. There are many against us. We have indwelling sin. We have hardships of this life and the persecution from the unbelieving world. The world, the flesh, and the devil remain against us in this life. But that's not the question, Christian. And the if here clarifies it. The if here could also be translated since or because. If, since, God is for us, Who can be against us? Now Paul is not suggesting every person can ask this question. He's speaking of the believer. The one whom God foreknew. The one whom God predestined. The one whom God called and justified and glorified. He is speaking to the one whom all things are working together for their good. That's who. That's the one God is for. So this question is not about the believer having enemies or troubles. It's a question of whether these enemies will prevail over us. For the believer whom God is for, they cannot and they never will prevail, Christian. Because God is for us. Do you believe that? Now this can be somewhat of a dangerous statement, right? Many fanatical religious people or groups speak this way. Islamic terrorists speak this way. But why do we know this to be true for us as Christians? Because of verse 32, Christian. Look at it. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The fact that no one will prevail over us, believer, is no fairy tale, wishful thinking kind of promise. No, it's a promise rooted and grounded in redemptive time and history. How do we know that God is for us? We look to the cross. Amen. Paul has a, a greater to he uses a greater to lesser argument here to make his point. If God did the greater thing, giving up his own son, will he not do the lesser thing? Give us everything we need to sustain us in our salvation? If he offered up his son on the cross for our sins, it should be a small thing. For us to believe he will provide that what we need of faith. All things pertaining to what we need to sustain us in our salvation, our sanctification. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Notice Paul adds emphasis in our text here through the word own. God did not spare His own Son. What does that mean? It means that God gave His best. God gave the most. God made the greatest sacrifice. He did not spare His one and only Son. He gave Him up willingly and purposely for sinners like you and me. Isaiah 53.10 reminds us that it pleased the Lord to bruise, to crush His Son. It pleased the Lord to subject His beloved Son to a sin-bearing, sacrificial, horrible, substitutionary death for sinners like us. Baptist preacher, Octavius Winslow, who the 19th century was correct when he said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And if that's the case then, is there anything or anyone that could stop God's salvation process in our lives, Christian? God himself won't stop it. If he was willing to give up his son, the greatest thing, he will certainly do the lesser thing, keep us from, keep us whom he gave his son for. But the logic of this text should provide us with an overflowing abundance of confidence and assurance. But it's important we notice where it comes from. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from, uh, from assessing how well we're doing or feeling. How bad we are doing, good we're feeling. It comes from believing the truth that God is for us, Christian. He gave His best for you. He slayed His son for you. The question is, do we believe that? And if so, you cannot believe that He will not provide what's needed to sustain you, Christian. Second question: Who shall bring a charge? against us, verse 33. Paul brings in courtroom language, now really to drive his point further. Who can bring a charge or accusation against God's elect? And notice here the language Paul uses to describe the Christian. God's elect. This language reflective of God foreknowing and predestining the believer from the preceding verses. But please notice again. How His usage of it here in no way is cold or distant. Rather, it's familial and encouraging. It's intimate and assuring. God's sovereignty is not a club, Christian. It's a comfort to us. Because we are part of God's elect, because He has chosen freely to set His grace upon us, no one can bring any accusation against us. Now, The Bible identifies Satan in Revelation 12.10 as the accuser of the brethren. The Bible tells us how Satan desires to report all the bad to, the, about us to accuse us and condemn us. So the question is, can this stick, Christian? Can this actually work? Can Satan's accusation stick for the believer? The answer is a resounding no in light of verse 33. 30, why? For it is God who justifies, Paul says. To the only one who is who it actually matters To him, he does not accuse us, but he justifies us. And when the omnipotent, sovereign, righteous judge of all the earth says, not guilty, then you're not guilty, Christian. God has justified you. And when his gavel slams, the case is closed. You are justified. When anyone tries to accuse you, Christian, go back to the gospel, go back to the truths of the gospel. Third question, who will condemn us, verse 34. Paul now moves to a similar question, but with a different twist, as he kind of turns the the diamond here to develop his argument. Who is to condemn? 1 John 3, 20 tells us that sometimes our hearts try to condemn us. As we said, Satan will try to accuse us and condemn us. Critics and enemies, they try to condemn us, but they can never prevail, why? gives us four, what I see as layers of protection as believers here. The first one is this. For Christ, Jesus died. The only one who can rightly condemn us has actually been condemned in our place. Jesus died for us. He paid the penalty for us and he paid it in full. It is finished was his cry from the cross. And Jesus' death satisfies the holy wrath of the Father to our sin. Jesus took our condemnation by his Death. He paid in full the penalty for the sins which could be listed against us. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 reminds us that there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's more protection, Christian. He didn't just die. Christ Jesus not only died, more than that was raised. The resurrection forever marks God's stamp of approval over Christ's work. The resurrection takes away all the doubt that Jesus' work was somehow not sufficient or complete. Jesus satisfied every demand of God's holiness towards sin. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death and was raised. But Jesus' ministry is ongoing. He was raised and he's at the right hand of the Father. Christ Jesus at the right hand of God. Hebrews one three tells us that after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than his. Jesus taking his seat at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority, is a declaration of the Father's satisfaction of the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus was supremely exalted, given a name above every name, Philippians says. Christ occupies the seat of highest authority and honor. And he is active Christian from there on our behalf. He is interceding for us, the text says. He is our heavenly advocate and high priest. Jesus continues to secure the benefits of salvation for us. Jesus is interceding for us. Paul's already told us back in 8.26 how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Now he tells us that Christ, our Savior, is in fact interceding on our behalf. Robert Murray McShane said it this way. I want you to hear this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Would you agree with that? Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me all the way. What assurance, Christian. What encouragement. I think it's really encouraging when you get an email, when you get a card, when you get a, a text saying, I'm praying for you. I know the Tab enjoys that. You should do that more for Pastor Tab than your other pastors here. I enjoy that as a pastor. But oh, what deeper joy and encouragement it brings to know that if no one ever texts me, if I never get one phone call or one email of anybody praying for me, there's not a moment that passes that I'm not prayed for, that you're not prayed for as Christian, because Christ is interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is his fourth question. As our brother John Stott points out, if we were climbing a grand staircase in these final verses, we now come to the top step. Paul's response to this final unanswerable question is twice as long as the others. And notice he moves here from, maybe we could say doctrinal truth to pastoral care. He goes right to the heart. Doctrinal truth should never be cold or callous. It should enliven our hearts. But let me ask you. What do we tend to doubt the most when things are difficult? We tend to question God's love for us. We tend to question His care for us. What we see here is that Jesus does more than just defend us. He loves us with an unbreakable certain love. Christ has entered a relationship with us, and because of this, nothing can separate us from His love. Paul points out, points to a litany of possibilities to make his point here. But look, before we examine each one of these, we should not miss the precision of Paul's language here. Paul does not say what can separate us from Christ, which is true. He doesn't say that. He asks, who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Love is what binds us to Christ and informs our relationship to Him. Christ keeps you Christian because He loves you. Good. It is the love of God in Christ which binds us to Him, not our obedience, not our righteousness his love for us in Christ that is the true motivation of the Christian faith that is the true motivation of our sanctification that is the engine that drives this train Paul is dragging along the track here it is the sustaining assurance of our salvation I want to begin reading again in verse 35 down to the end listen to these most magnificent words Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor power, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tribulation, it's a word of strong pressure, trouble, and we know that one. Distress or hardship, this could be outward affliction or inward distress. What matters is the truth that neither can and will separate us from the love of Christ. Christian, do you feel alone? And feel cheated, full of distress, often in anguish? God loves you and he's for you in Christ. Persecution, there there's a real possibility for the early church and a possibility for many Christians around the world. If you were to know you were going to face persecution, what text would you meditate on? This might be a good one. Famine speaks of our basic necessities. Nakedness refers to destitute and poverty. But dangerous sword. Like the man pinning this letter knew this all too well. 2 Corinthians 11 comes to mind where Paul spoke of danger of rivers, danger of robbers, dangers from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, without often without food and cold and exposure. The Apostle Paul was no armchair theologian. He didn't just know the certainty of God's love through abstract study. He knew it through experience. He had endured all these things and more. He had stood in the face of danger and death. He lived this. He learned not to trust his feelings and emotions. He didn't allow his fears to overcome him. He allowed the, the truth of the Word of God to inform his perspective. And he knew. He was not alone in his struggle, which is exactly why he quotes Psalm forty-four, twenty-two, originally penned as a plea from Israel in the wilderness. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded sheep to be slaughtered. Paul knew exactly what it was like to feel like a sheep headed to the slaughter. He had lived this, and he had learned something essential through it. What did Paul learn in this? No, that's what Paul learned. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The word here Paul uses could be translated literally super conquerors. And notice Paul says, in these things, we are super conquerors. It's not around these things. It's not in spite of these things. It's not when these things are over. It's in these things. Which means to be more than conquerors is for God to use these things for our good. It means that uh, that the all things God is working for our good of Romans 8.28 includes these very things. The groanings and the pain. They produce something in the Christian. As they prepare us and transform us into the image of Christ. But Christian, don't miss the qualification here. This is through Him. We don't possess some baseless triumphalism as Christians. It's through Him. Christ is the victor. Apart from Him, we are not conquerors. Apart from Christ, we are conquered by our sins and all the pains of this world. But in Him, we cannot be destroyed. We won't be shaken. We're victors through Christ. Through Him who loved us. This leads Paul to an assurance in verse 37. And my church knows this. This is my favorite chapter in the Bible. This is the best chapter in the Bible. I'll just say it. (laughs) But after studying this text to preach it, I had never grasped and held to these four words here, which I think ground this whole text. For I am sure. I am persuaded, he says. I am convinced, Paul says. Paul says he is certain, sure. How many things can you say that about? How many things can you speak with that type of certainty? I'm not a believer this morning. I want you to know, Christianity is not about wishful thinking. It's not about fairy tale faith. It's about possessing an anchor in our soul. It's about a humble certainty that our, about our relationship with God. It's about assurance of God's love for us, which sustains us through any aspect of life, no matter what comes our way. And to make this point, as one preacher says, Paul puts the rhetorical pedal to the homiletical medal here to convince us of the inseparable love of God in Christ. He provides four pairs of threats or separators in verse 38. For I'm sure there is death or life, angels, no rulers, things present or things to come, no power, no height, no depth, nor anything else in all creation. have the separatists and the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Death and life, the realm of human existence, can this separate us? Angels and demons, the spiritual realm, can they separate us? Things present or things to come, can the events of history separate us, Christians? No power. What about a spiritual power of darkness? Can that separate us? The hymn writer comes to mind. No power of hell, no scheme of man. Pluck me from his hand. Height nor depth. This is probably an all-encompassing summation of everything. Nothing in heaven, hell, or all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Paul was certain of this. Are you Christian? Look, Paul was a man of he was a man of unprecedented faith. He was a man of a chiseled will. He was forever moving forward. But that says nothing about Paul. That says everything about the God he served and the God he loved and the certainty of Christ's love for him. He possessed a sustaining assurance through the love of Christ. And this came through all these things. 2020 has been hard. It continues to chisel away at us. And I want you to hear something, Christian. From this text. Difficulty is where depth is found for the believer. Hardship is where our hearts are developed as Christians. (coughs) Distress is where deep assurance and certainty in the love of Christ is forged in our souls. I'm going to end with somewhat of a long illustration here, and it's a very helpful one. It's regarding a a young believer named Hin Pham, who was an interpreter for a famous evangelist in. Vietnam in 1971, and he found this assurance Paul speaks of here in the most unusual of circumstances. He worked alongside this evangelist for an extended period of time sharing the gospel in the final years of the war, and they struck up a deep friendship. So it was a a sad day when they had to part ways as the American returned home. Really, within four years, Vietnam fell and his fate was unknown for 17 years until he's finally able to connect with his American friend by, by phone. After the initial small talk of catching up, he asked he, him was asked how he managed to get out of Vietnam and come to the United States. His American friend was completely unprepared for the story that would follow. Shortly after Vietnam fell, the communists arrested and imprisoned him for aiding and abetting the Americans. The jailer's sole aim was to indoctrinate him against democratic ideals and especially the Christian faith. He was cut off from reading anything in English and restricted to communist propaganda in French and Vietnamese language. And this began to take its toll on him. He began to consider, maybe I was lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe this whole thing, this whole life was given to me as a lie. Maybe Christianity has deceived me. The more he thought, the more he moved towards a decision. Finally, he made up his mind. He determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore or even think of his Christian faith again. The next morning, he was assigned to clean the latrines of the prison. It was the most dreaded chore, shunned by everyone. So with much distress, he began this awful task, and he cleaned out a tin overflowing with toilet paper. His eyes caught something that he looked like English print on a little piece of paper. He hurriedly washed it off and he slipped it into his pocket playing to read it that night. Not having seen anything in English for such long, this language that he spent so much time learning that he loved, he was anxiously waiting for a free moment to read it. Under the mosquito net that night, after his roommates had fallen asleep, he pulled out a small flashlight and he shined it on this damp piece of paper he read at the top corner, Romans chapter 8. Literally trembling, was shocked, he began to read And we know that all things, in all things, God works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. He kept reading, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He went on to read, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness, or famine or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His eyes wandered down the page and wept, he said. He knew his Bible. And he had not seen, he knew his Bible and he hadn't seen one for so long. Not only that, he knew there was not really a more relevant passage of conviction and strength for one on the verge of surrendering to the threat of evil. He cried out to God, asking for forgiveness. This was as he said, it was supposed to be the first day in years that he had determined not to pray. Evidently, God, the sovereign God, had other plans for his life. The next day, in asked the camp commander if he could clean the latrines again. He continued with his chore on a regular basis. And here's what he discovered. Some of the officials in the camp were using Bibles as toilet paper. Each day, In picked up a, a portion of scripture, God's word, cleaned it up. He added to his nightly devotional reading. And this was the way God's sovereign, loving hand of providence reached down and exposed the love of Christ again to into his heart. Eventually, he would be broken out of prison by some Vietnamese soldiers who decided to leave the Communist Party. He would make his way to Thailand, eventually to the U.S. And He says, through it all, his soul was seared. With the sustaining assurance of God's inseparable love for him in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this morning that the engine which drives our sanctification must be, has to be, the assurance of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. Christian, it must be the cross of Christ. It must be the gospel of Christ. As one pastor says, the felt love of God makes heroic Christians. Might we be that? It's my prayer for you, Grace Church. It's the prayer for my church that we would be heroic Christians, that this church would be known as a heroic church, especially in this season of life. The question is this, will you be bold enough to allow this assurance to settle into your souls? An assurance of God's inseparable love for you in Christ. For then and only then we'll be able to walk through anything knowing that we are super conquerors through Him. I pray you know this love, Christian. I pray that you are thoroughly convinced of it. Because the sustaining assurance of the of our salvation is found, Christian, in the exaltation of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. Let's pray. God, my God, we thank you that you are not just God. I thank you that you're not just God. You're my God in Christ, you're our God in Christ. We're your people, bought by the blood of the Lamb. But might you make us heroic Christians, not superficial, not flashy, simple, heroic Christians, who have a loud, The assurance, your love for us in Christ to seep into every corner of our soul. We'll be able to walk forward in faith. Be a church who not just knows the love of Christ, but expresses the love of Christ. Or might you make the gospel again fresh and central in our lives. Let the cross be the center and the motivation behind our Christian life. Lord, we love you and we thank you because you first loved us in Christ. Might that be our hope, might that be our assurance in this season especially. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.